Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Most of my listeners know that I am very excited to help them understand how Charlotte Mason fits into the classical tradition of education. So I have with me today uh, somebody who I think is an expert on this topic, Dr. Patrick Egan. He is the academic dean of Clapham School, and I have been following their blog posts, um, their newsletters, The Educational Renaissance, for several years. Dr. Egan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adrian. It's so good to be with you. Yeah. So tell us about the history of your school and how you guys have come about um, bringing Charlotte Mason into, into your program. Mm. Yeah. So Clapham School was started, I want to say 2004, 2005, somewhere uh, in that uh, time frame. From its inception, there has been some amount of Charlotte Mason influence. Um, the Clapham name comes from the Clapham Saints. So Clapham is a borough of South London. And uh, the founders of the school lived in that area for a span of time and uh, cherish that name because of its connection to figures like Wilberforce, who were so instrumental in uh, the abolition movement in Britain. Um, and there were quite a few figures surrounding Wilberforce doing things not just in the political movement uh, against abolition, but also in Christian mission and educational reform in Britain, in prison reform in Britain. So it was a movement that really wanted to connect the heart of Christianity, of evangelical Christianity, to um, being the hands and feet of Christ in Britain at that time. I mean, when you think about it, at the height of the British Empire, these people were a force for um, so many Christian um, ministries of different kinds, and really creative in, in their implementation of that. So the Clapham name came over here from that, and that speaks a bit to one of the schools we were modeled after, and that's the Wilberforce School in Princeton, New Jersey, which is also one of these hybrid classical Charlotte Mason schools. And there were a number of other schools at that point that Clapham was consciously modeling itself after. So from its inception, from its inception, we did have uh, that Charlotte Mason influence. When I joined in 2009, we more consciously connected or plugged into Charlotte Mason by joining the Ambleside International Schools Movement and Bill and Mary Ellen St. Cyr, who are founders of that school movement, came on site, did training with us, 
I can still hear Bill St. Cyr's voice in my head. He's very much a mentor of mine in their particular read of Charlotte Mason, which mm -hmm. I think is, is really faithful to it, really practical in how to spell that out in a small school setting. And, um, and so there was a very conscious fulfilling of what Charlotte Mason might look like in a school like ours that was trying to fulfill this classicism of the classical Christian education movement, but also really drilling down into Charlotte Mason as well. And we have since moved away from Ambleside and are kind of doing our own thing of figuring out these points of tension between the classical movement and Charlotte Mason and that makes our school really exciting because we're we're trying to live in what feels like two worlds. And I think part of what we'll talk about today is how they're not really two different worlds. There's just uh, ways in which one informs the other in really interesting ways. Hmm. Yeah. I, well, and I also went I went to uh, Bill and Mary Ellen's school in um, Fredericksburg. Yeah, yeah. Several years ago and went through their intense training many, many years ago. I love, I really love them. I think that their work is important to the whole movement. Uh, I know that they don't consider their school classical per se. And so for that reason, we, ha I understand why you, you say what you said that you've had to kind of, okay, how does this fit within the classical model? And I think uh, many of us who have read Charlotte Mason, have followed her for a long time, and then begin beginning to read the people she read. Like, we know she read Aristotle, Plato, so, you know, she quoted Socrates, she quoted all of these people, and so we know that she read them, Aristotle, and uh, we can, it, it, for me, it drew me to go, okay, if I really want to live a Charlotte Mason lifestyle, then I would do well to go read them myself, not to read what somebody has written about, about them. And so I began the effort of reading the dialogues of Plato, reading Aristotle, reading these great, what I would say, fathers of the tradition, uh, August, St. Augustine's Confessions. I mean, just so many beautiful works. <clears throat> and as I would read them, I would just annotate, oh, this is so very Charlotte Mason. This is, And I began to make these connections of, wow, she truly is in line with, with the classical tradition. And uh, and then Karen Glass wrote her book, and I loved her book. And then I became sort of, sort of part of the debate that's out there, you know, about, well, she's not really classical, she's progressive. And it's like, well, yeah, but, you know, no, she actually is really classical. And and so, um, <clears throat> so she is part of what I would say is the tradition, and I'm very thrilled with the work you all have done. So what I'd like to do is allow our listeners to just glean into some of the insights that you have about how she connects with the, the fathers of the classical tradition. Um, so, I, I mean, I know you've written an article on Aristotle and the Four Causes and how I, I really enjoyed that, um, but you've written so many other things, as has um, your your uh, fellow colleagues, um, uh, Colby Atkinson, Atchison and Jason Barney have all written great things as well. So 
whatever you want to share with our listeners, I'm just going to kind of let the platform be laid for you to just lead us in what mm -hmm. you all have seen. Yeah. Well, uh, Karen Glass is fantastic. We had her, we interviewed her on our podcast as well. And I think um, she was uh, writing about this connection between classicism and Charlotte Mason at, at a point in time when Jason Colby and I were, were just getting started. You know, like she was uh, way out ahead on on trying to bring those those things together, and I so am appreciative of of her voice. Um, one thing I've thought about, maybe it's a good framework even to begin thinking about, is uh, I think of two ladies. Uh, one is Dorothy Sayers, and and her essay, "The Lost Tools of Learning," was so important to the classical Christian education movement. And people latched onto that, and it was like a, a drink of refreshing water in an educational wilderness, right? And that's why it took hold, caught fire, and all of that. Now, I think there are some underlying assumptions to her essay that that movement latched onto, stages of child development, uh, a reading of the trivium in particular in a way that probably wasn't truly trivium, uh -huh. but it, it generated a bunch of energy, a bunch of school interest that was oriented around school renewal. Let's go Correct. back to the old single room schoolhouse, Americana, in, in a way of, of thinking about we've lost our way in educating our children to have the kind of moral values that created this American experiment, right? And right. It, it was the fault of progressivist principles in education. Mm -hmm. So that's one lady, Dorothy Sayers. The other lady is Charlotte Mason, whom you might think is progressivist as well. She, she was doing her work in the late Victorian era, Edwardian era in England, and she was not this Etonian, Oxbridge kind of educationist, she really was mindful of the poorer communities. How do we take that Etonian education, that classical education, to the mining communities? Uh -huh. And so this education for all idea feels kind of progressivist, which is maybe why classical education folk have not looked on her kindly. But there's this undercurrent in her work of classicism. It's an assumption of the great books tradition and the right. principles of that medieval model of education that doesn't have to be for um, the aristocratic class, but for all people. And right. so it's a particular kind of educational reform that she's doing that I think is actually really compatible with our educational renewal movement and, and may have insights for, for classicism that helps it maintain uh, a modern cutting edge to it. So how do we as classicists grab Plato, Aristotle, Dante, Shakespeare, Jane Austen, but also remain conversant with the new economy, with 
changes in technology, how do we incorporate uh, the internet <laughs> into right. the classroom? Um, so Clapham is a very intentionally low-tech school, but we're very mindful of ways in which we actually need to train our students in how to responsibly utilize the tools, the digital tools of learning for, for today. And so if I can't word process or create a PowerPoint presentation, that's part of modern rhetoric, isn't it? It's and, true. And yeah. I've actually found that Charlotte Mason was working towards a synthesis uh, well ahead of her time that can be valuable for us to think through to, in some ways, modernize all of these principles we've gained from classical education. So these two ladies, Dorothy Sayers, Charlotte Mason, and obviously you can branch out from them. I've actually found C.S. Lewis, Abolition of Man, to be a really powerful augment to what Dorothy Sayers was doing. Same generation, very same kind of mindset, uh, but maybe a fuller expression of what she was trying to do in that essay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would like our listeners to hear from you a little bit more details about what connections you're, you see uh, to Charlotte Mason and the tradition. What, what, and, and let's get into pedagogy too with that as well. Yeah, yeah. And I'll begin with a slight critique of classical education. So oftentimes what is expressed from what I would might call more pure classical Christian educational people is that it is a method and that it has a pedagogy about it. And it's been hard for me to find the, the central pedagogical principles. So oftentimes there are methods we might use Socratic dialogue, we might use mimesis or memorization or lecture as tools in the classroom. But what I often find lacking is a, a really coherent anthropology and understanding of the child and the personhood of the child and an understanding of epistemology. So how do we learn in such a way that it's not just like I have an encounter with the true good and beautiful, but that it transforms me. And you really need some form of pedagogy to have that transformative effect in what you are encountering. So you can imagine a student going up to a great work of art, turning away from that beautiful work of art and saying, been there, done that. Mm -hmm. And it not having that deep penetrative transformative effect in, in that child. And I think that's what Charlotte Mason brings to the table is a, a really sophisticated anthropology. So viewing children as whole persons and all that that means in terms of Imago Dei and fallenness and the capacity, the full capacity. So it's not like we're waiting for that child to be a, a grown up in order to show them respect. Like right. they are so full of not only potential, but actualization as uh, very young children. All the tools are there. Um, and then also a really sophisticated epistemology. She was working on this mind-brain duality 
in her writings very early on. She understood aspects of neurology and child development um, almost ahead of her time. Sure. And so yeah. um, I think she brings to the table certain things that classicism just lacked. Um, and, uh, and, and perhaps bringing, bringing her in helps us to actually more fully realize what is our value proposition in classical Christian education, which is that uh, formative component of what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that you brought up the mind-brain connection. Could Would you be willing to elaborate on that a little bit, what she says about sure. that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, you have this idea of neuroplasticity, and that's that um, the brain we have today is not the brain we will have tomorrow, that it's constantly changing. And it, it will change in whatever direction it will. Like, it's going to change no matter what. And this is where Charlotte Mason, interestingly, draws upon Plato and Aristotle to talk about habit training. If we are going to be a virtuous individual, you become virtuous by way of habit. Well, that, that habituation towards what is virtuous occurs not only in kind of this spiritual moral plane, the an abstract plane, but also even within the physical nature of ourselves, in our neurology, so that new synapses connect as we practice things. And those things that we practice could be mathematical, grammatical, or, or whatever, but they can also be spiritual and moral. So as I practice how to devote myself to God, you know, there's a disposition I need to have, but all, it, it manifests itself physically in ourselves, in our countenance. Mm -hmm. If I am going to be ready to work in my classroom, I can look at a, at a child and see, are they slouching? Are they, do they have a vacant look on their face? Well, I can call them to a more energetic engagement with work by calling them to ready position. So Correct. it's a disposition to engage and care about my work, but it manifests itself physically in my posture and the countenance I'm showing on my face. Well, this whole brain-mind duality is we've got the physical matter of our brain, but our mind is this abstract thing. It thinks thoughts. It has an emotional component to it. It has a moral component, a will. And, um, and so oftentimes in philosophy, the question is, is um, does the physical have this almost metaphysical component as a, that's kind of a neurological side effect of what's going on? Um, or does that metaphysical, does the thought life of an individual restructure the physical nature of the brain? And recent research is showing that actually it, it does cut both ways. Like we are limited by what our brain can do, right? <laughs> but we can actually think thoughts that uh, redirect the very neurology of our brain. And so Charlotte Mason was very aware of research in that direction. Um, obviously, in the 90s, 2000s, there was cutting edge research identifying some of those things that that's more recent, but uh, this this whole idea of neurology 
and neuroplasticity was already around in her day. And she was looking over the shoulders of those scientists and saying, there's something to that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is very important. I think, I think her view of, of that along with her principle that children are born persons are incredibly important to how we teach them. Um, I'm always thinking through when I'm working with teachers, how to encourage the teacher to call the child to their noble self mm. self. And I think Charlotte Mason, that was a very much a bedrock of what she was doing was let's call the child to their noble self, to that which God created within them to be able to know and to be able to choose virtue and to harness the will and doing that through um, what she would say, uh, mind to mind. I mean, the mind being connected to the great minds uh, to wrestle with big ideas I, was really the essence of what she wanted children to experience so that they could be, they could rise to their their noble self. So I really like that you bring up this ready position. I've, I think I've heard on one of your podcasts about um, uh, classroom management. And I think this just brings right into that, that the Charlotte Mason habits helping to lay the groundwork of classroom management without external rewards, right? Yeah. And because that really values the child as a full human being, uh, being created in the image of God, they don't need the lollipop, right? Um, I want to turn to, I know we wanted to talk about the 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 Spanish chapel mm -hmm. fresco mm -hmm. that yeah. was Charlotte Mason's awakening mm -hmm. Um, if if you wouldn't mind sharing, is this the triumph of St. Thomas Aquinas one we're, we're, we're talking totally. about? That's exactly the one. Yeah. yeah. And so we will definitely put that in the show notes as well, because I really want our listeners to get a grasp of what Charlotte mm -hmm. Mason saw in, in this fresco. And uh, it's in also, I'll put a link to where her awakening is. I think it's in volume three. Uh, where she talks yeah, about yeah, she about talks the about it in volume three and in volume five. It's like she refers to it frequently, yeah. but uh, I, I've often th this is a thought experiment. What if we didn't have Dorothy Sayers <laughs> writing her essay? Would the classical Christian education movement had a generative force, an inciting force? And That's I actually a great think question. Mason yeah, Charlotte Mason could have been that force sure. just in her description of the Spanish chapel. Yeah. And so uh, what she does uh, is she visits uh, Florence and sees uh, the uh, the chapel, Santa Maria Novella, and um, it's this beautiful uh, cathedral and on uh, on the uh, the wall behind the uh, uh, the altar is uh, this triumph, this painting, a mural of the uh, what they call the triumph of Saint Aquinas, and that's because Saint Aquinas is seated on the throne there. And what happens is you have the spirit descending, uh, and she writes about how the spirit comes down and is over the seven liberal arts and then below the seven liberal arts are these master figures in all of these different areas so you might have euclid and um i don't know there's there's others there's a she she writes very eloquently about 
this. And what this pictures for me is that Charlotte Mason is very much aware of this medieval expression of what education was all about. It was about um, training in the arts, and, and these are liberal arts, this libera, that these are the arts that make you truly free as an individual, free to pursue those things that you ought to pursue as an individual. You become well-trained in these, these arts that have attendant virtues with them. And it's also integrated. So it's not like I am majoring in one of the arts. I learn all of these seven arts in order to become a well-formed, well-rounded individual. And, um, and then the whole Christian aspect is the spirit is descending over all of these. So the figures painted in this chapel might be considered pagan. But what the Christians did is they appropriated this wisdom and said, if, if in all of these domains you have truth expressed, and there's this understanding of all truth is God's truth, then we see that the spirit has already gone out through these seven liberal arts into the world to express the handiwork of God. So learning them is a way of training ourselves. So it's a beautiful expression through Charlotte Mason of what is fundamentally classical, those seven liberal arts, the trivium and the quadrivium. And I think as you read Charlotte Mason, uh, classicists will read her, and there will be some places where they'll feel a little out of their, you know, just stretched because uh, of some of her her language and, and orientation to Britain in the time of Victoria and all of that. That's fine. Like, it's part of the lovely nature of, of reading her. But you'll see throughout that she is a great books advocate, and that's one of the core values of the classical education is is a uh, reappropriation of that which was lost. I always think of it as uh, the the ring of power. We lost it and we shouldn't have lost it. And, and now we're recovering Plato. We're recovering Shakespeare and um, bringing them back into the curriculum. So she was very mindful of that. She actually talks a lot about Latin as well. Mm-hmm. Throughout all of her volumes, there's a place for Latin in her curriculum alongside English and French, and sometimes German as well. Mm -hmm. I think Um, Italian as well. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, she also speaks about logic. So there's an understanding that there is a background structure in what she's talking about of that grammar, logic, rhetoric sequence Mm -hmm. in uh, primary and secondary education. So she doesn't spell it out like we might find it in, um, in say, uh, what is it, The Well-Trained Mind, um, where it's very much, you know, here's how you do the grammar stage, here's how you do the logic stage, and here's how you do the rhetoric stage. But you can see that it's a fundamental assumption of Charlotte Mason, this, this kind of classical schooling um she i mean she mentions let's start teaching latin for children who are eight or nine (laughs) that Mm -hmm. that sounds like a classical school to me um 
and she even talks about rhetoric in in her philosophy of education book as well. So um, so yeah, starting with the Spanish chapel and everything that she expresses there, I think we could have still had the classical education movement today just from what Charlotte Mason talks about. Right, and the explosion of of her. Yeah, it's true. I think you may be right there. I had never thought of that. Um, and I am not, uh, I, I'm sure you're not either a, a fan of following the Dorothy Sayers stages, stages and right, stages right. model. It's not, mm -hmm. it's really actually not compatible with Charlotte Mason, in my opinion, in, in the way in which the trivium actually operates and what it really is. And I've, I'll be having more episodes about that. And my listeners know kind of how I feel about that. But uh, back to the fresco a little bit here, I, I pulled up some information and forgot here. It's been a while since I've looked at it. That seven virtues are there. The cardinal virtues are there. Then the biblical figures, the apostles are there, and Moses, Isaiah, Solomon. And 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 uh, I think it's one of the points I remember her making is, and it might not have been actually in that point in that in her uh, exposition about this painting. But um, that she really truly believes that it's the work of, and I, yeah, she did pull this out from this painting, that it's the work of the Holy Spirit to be the one who educates us. And that it's our duty to present to the children that which is true and good and beautiful from the virtues and the apostles and the seven liberal arts and the uh, actually more than the seven liberal arts because she gets into even more. There's more in this painting, mm -hmm. and um, even the practical arts. You know the handicrafts that she she wants to bring in and the the practical. You know learning how to till the soil and take care of animals. You know those things, mm -hmm. those practical arts. So I I think that when I think about narration, I think one of the points that in in her practice of narration, one of her points is that narration allows you, the teacher or the parent, to step back and allow the Holy Spirit to influence that idea that the child has just learned about. Am, am I correct? Is that how you implement and understand narration as well? Yes. I, I understand narration to be an act of assimilation of knowledge. So I, I read or listen to the text and it's an act of attention when i'm reading or listening and then the very next movement is as it's lingering kind of in my mind i'm re-expressing it so it's not an act of memorization so i'm not going for word perfect it's it's going to have words from that, very specific and detailed words. So oftentimes as an educator, as a teacher in the classroom, I'm listening for words. I'm listening for details. The sequence is really important. Have I understood the flow of, say, the argument or the narrative? Mm -hmm. um, but it's an act of taking it in, into myself. So I've heard, processed, and now brought it out of myself. Um, and that assimilation isn't yet even working with that knowledge. It's just getting it in there. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I very much see narration as a key process in the inception of, of uh, learning. Yeah, right. One of the things that I've 
realized about narration too that I think is important uh, for teachers to understand is that as the child is putting it into their own words and as they have been narrating for many years and, and having many connections from grade to grade, book to book, idea to idea, right? That as they become mature and advance in the ability to narrate, that it's okay for the student to bring in some of those ideas and connections that they are making as they're narrating, like, oh, and this part reminded me of, of this other. And actually, in fact, that's what we want to see happening when students are narrating and advancing in it. And so to me, I guess I see that as sort of that, the work of the Holy Spirit, that, that what that child needs is that connection. It's also why she's a proponent of the great books is, you know, like in nutrition, you could eat lots of different foods, but being able to be distinguishing between those that have higher uh, nutrients, you know, nutrient density is, is better. So that's why it's better to have a steak and potatoes meal than just candy corn all the time. And uh, so being really discerning about the books we place in front of our students, it's nutrient dense reading that we're doing. And, and the nutrients are going to fortify not only our intellect, but also our soul, the moral direction we have. Um, and that, yeah, what we're narrating, what we're assimilating are things that can give us guidance in life. And, and just notice how different that is from what I, what I hear to be the proposition of modern secular education is the, the proposition is come unto us and we will teach you how to get a job and to work that job. But we're not claiming to give you any direction at life mm -hmm. um, versus an education that is saying, we're going to fortify you for life. The job will take care of itself if you are an individual properly directed towards living the best life possible. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, I just think it puts puts properly that uh, that well ordered life. So right. um, so yeah, the the pabulum I think is what she calls it, the food <laughs> of the mind. Right. You know, I, I'm thinking about this and wondering one of there. I know there's a lot of misconceptions of Charlotte Mason, and I'm mm -hmm. I'm just curious if you have wrestled with any parents or teachers who will come and think that Charlotte Mason is just another version or type of Montessori, right? Mm -hmm. And I know there are some overlaps, but there's also some huge differences. Do you feel like you could talk to that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. Um, it is Charlotte Mason, because she is so connected to the homeschool movement, there's a wide range of people who are reading her and and it's great to have so many different people reading reading her. So you've got unschoolers who are reading Charlotte Mason because she wants children out in nature. So one of God's best great books is nature itself. And so the unschooling movement says, oh, I love that. Let's get our kids outside, low structure, we'll learn from nature. And, 
And maybe what they're missing is a lot of the structures she puts in there, all of the content that you need to learn um, throughout the curriculum. Um, the, there are others who are, are reading her that uh, feel like traditional schooling is uh, potentially oppressive. And, um, and so they really lean into Charlotte Mason's education for all. And so it's, it's this um, anti-oppressionist kind of uh, take on it. Uh, which which may be um, so if you're oriented towards activism and my children are going to be activists, we're reading Charlotte Mason in order to change the world, just like she did. So there's a lot of different ways to read them that are actually quite productive and and extracting a, a really important aspect of of Charlotte Mason. But I think classicists can do this as well and and read the ways in which it informs the classical tradition. Um, and there's a caution in there that we not just read her with our own eyes to kind of reify our own perspectives, um, but to truly be challenged by her to, to, um, to make sure that we're providing the best education possible by being thoughtful, humble readers of, of the text. So, um, Yes, there, there are a lot of different perspectives. So we do nature study. We want our kids to be outdoors mm -hmm. and experience all four seasons and to uh, play with twigs and bugs. That's really important to us. Nature journaling is really important to us. Um, and uh, we, because of Charlotte Mason, and, and my hope is all classical education schools have the same value, but that the arts, both the visual and the performing arts, are core to what we're doing. And Charlotte Mason is, is very mindful that children from early ages should be painting and singing and acting, that that is part of, of our makeup. How Aristotelian of her. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so, um, so I think there's there's much that we can learn. Now, I did write on um, Charlotte Mason and Maria Montessori that mm -hmm. they were rough contemporaries of one another. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Maria Montessori came to London, uh, there was a there was a a movement that that kind of followed her. Now, Maria Montessori being Italian and and kind of doing her work. Um, you know, uh, in a very different context than than Mason, probably initiated some some rather different ideas. And there are some principles that overlap. But uh, Charlotte Mason actually was pretty critical of Maria Montessori, okay. and there are some big differences between them. Um, but I think the way that Montessori is expressed today isn't so incompatible with, say, Charlotte Mason or classical education that um, if, if I were a parent and I had my child in a Montessori school and then moved them into a classical school, that it would be so drastic a change that, um, that it, it wouldn't work. So, uh, so there's a lot of different models out there 
And Charlotte yeah. Mason isn't necessarily yet another model. She really is a, an educational philosopher. Yeah. And it's hard to pigeonhole her, therefore, into, say, a model, which is why I think she becomes very valuable to classical education, because we can engage with her and say, what can we learn pedagogically that really makes our what we're aiming towards work? Right. Oh, so well said. I'm so happy that you you said that, that she's not necessarily her own model. I think that's really important to, to make that distinction. Um, you know, one of the, I went to a Montessori school for four years from the age of four to eight, and I have visited some, and I think there's some beauty in it. That, but I, I, one of the distinctions I have made, and I want our listeners to to be aware of this, is that when you're under that level of child directed, where the child is going towards the things they're interested in looking at, you actually are hindering them and limiting them because they don't even know to be interested if the feast isn't being put before them, and so. Charlotte Mason's idea of putting this feast with like a huge spread, right? I mean, it's a huge spread what she wants, these, the ideas that she wants the children to be exposed to. How can the child at the age of 14 or 15 even begin to uh, have an idea of what they might be interested in if they haven't been intentionally exposed to a feast? And so I think that for me is a huge difference than Montessori, uh, which I think that there are things about Montessori that are just fine for pre-K. I do. I really think that there's a, a mesh and an overlap that you could kind of have a, a Charlotte Mason Montessori preschool. And I've been wrestling with this at a lot of classical schools I work with that have these pre-K three and four-year-olds. What would that look like? And I see kind of an overlap. I think that some of the Montessori materials are great. And if you could sort of put that in with this Charlotte Mason principles, I think it would be beautiful. I would love to see schools do this. And I'd love to help schools kind of develop this. But I think the underlying child-centered, child-directedness is very, uh, I mean, it was very hindering to me. It was very, very hindering to me as a, as a person. And I think that as I recognized when I was about six and seven, how much I was missing and that I wasn't getting, that I was hungry for, that I was being kept from intentionally because I wasn't matching all the checkmark benches that the Montessori educators thought I needed to have before I was allowed to move to the next level of Montessori. It hindered me significantly. And so I've been, I think that's one of the reasons why I personally love Charlotte Mason so much is because I saw where she was, was able to fill in um, this idea of this feast that I, that I didn't get as a child. And I, and I want parents to hear that. I think that to really consider how important it is for a child to awaken to what they're interested in by first giving them the feast to experience. Mm -hmm. um, so I, for me, that's, I just wanted to put that in. I, if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, it, uh, some of the thoughts I'm having is, is to uh, get into what is the core of Charlotte Mason 
And, and that's going to help people really differentiate, well, what is she really on about from other kind of school options? And, and really, it comes down to three tools of learning, as she describes them. And, and one is ideas. And we access that through that great books tradition. So she wants us to be very choosy about what we read. And then we narrate those things. And then we discuss them. And, and that's a way of, of working those ideas out. She beautifully describes how ideas generate other ideas. And so it's not as though I just learn one idea. I, I actually learn a node in a network of ideas, some of which may be brand new. So that's one instrument of education. You can hear how that instrument of education is very general and applicable to multiple contexts, multiple cultures. So I don't have to become a Victorian English lad in order to, to get that. Uh, the second instrument, instrument would be habits or what she calls discipline. So it's it's very counter to uh, classroom management. It's basically, and you, you've already mentioned this, like the noble vision of the self. How do I become that? And I access that through the ideas, right? So when I read about Napoleon or George Washington and I see that nobility, I'm inclined to imitate that. Well, that imitative impulse is acted out in, in our daily lives. And so when I'm lining up to go from my classroom to the art classroom, there's an order that I can like be trained into that has principles of kindness to other classes or orderliness that I'm enacting bodily through these habits. So discipline would be the second instrument, and the third is atmosphere. And here I think we can see maybe a slight difference with Montessori. So the atmosphere is the physical room that we might learn in, and she often is using the home as, as the inspiring idea for this. So at Clapham School, as we have outfitted this school, we're very mindful of using home-like furniture in our school and paintings and the design. It, when you walk in here, you would not see anything from a school store with the primary colors and big numbers right. and posters. No cat posters here. It's beautiful artwork. And, and if you didn't have it in your living room, it wouldn't be here. Um, and so uh, the atmosphere is both what it looks like and also this sense of what I call the, the projection of the teacher into the classroom. So there's a personality of learning, of excellence, of uh, all of those uh, things that you need to learn. So with all of these tools of, of learning that she talks about, or these instruments of education, you, you can see how it, it really is a philosophy that can can modulate to a bunch of different contexts. And she'll spell it out in very specific ways. And you can follow those ways, even quite rigorously, to do Charlotte Mason education today. But um, when you go back to those three basics, uh, you, you find that what Charlotte Mason is all about is really fundamentally sound. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Well, I really have enjoyed this conversation. I think it's going to help a lot of our, our podcast listeners. I'm excited about the, a focused Charlotte Mason conversation. And I did not prep you for this, so I apologize. I like to close out my podcast asking if there is a book you wish you had read sooner in your life or a favorite mm -hmm. quote. Do you have anything off the top of your head? Well, I definitely wish I would have read uh, Charlotte Mason sooner. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I had already begun a career in education by that point, uh, being a lecturer at uh, seminaries. And, um, and then learning her transformed my life as a parent and as a teacher. Um, so I, I definitely wish I would have read that. And I highly recommend her sixth volume. So it's very rare that you would begin with the last thing somebody wrote. But her sixth volume of philosophy on education is uh, quite sound. I also wish I would have read sooner uh, C.S. Lewis, The Abolition of Man. Um, that, that's been something I've been reading through lately and, and thinking this, there is uh, so much... Um, to extract from that. So, uh, yeah, I wish I had read those. Yeah. Yeah. Volume six, Charlotte Mason is the same answer that I gave when somebody asked me that question. Mm -hmm. That is the book that I wished I had read sooner, but thankful that I did read it and that I got it. It changed my life as well. So, well, Dr. Egan, thank you so much. This has been Absolutely. a great joy and I probably will want to have you back on again or one Excellent. of your colleagues. <laughs> well, let's do that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education and if you want to help offset our production costs you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support as the great artist and educator john ruskin once said well my friends the final result of the education i want you to give your children will be in a few words this they will know what it is to see the sky they will know what it is to breathe it, and they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven.